it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hmm? Ah! Oh. The pain was bad. The smell was worse. But the worst thing was that it was my brother who did it. And my father, who protected him, told everyone my bedding caught fire. You think you're on your own. Greetings, everyone. I'm Kristen. And I'm Dave. And this is House Podcastica, Family Edition. This week, we are covering Season 4, Episode 7, Mockingbird, of our series rewatch. And this is a new voice that you have all heard, because I am very excited to say that I have my husband, Dave, with me this week. I'm very excited to finally get to do this. We decided that it would be fun to do a holiday edition, since we're recording on the week of Thanksgiving. Um... And Dave and I have been big fans of Game of Thrones for a really long time. Uh, The first episode that we actually watched before we even read the books was when uh, we had just had our first daughter and we watched the first episode. He's smiling and nodding because he knows what I'm about to say. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And at the very end of the first episode is when as we all know, Jamie pushes Bran out the window. And I remember I turned and looked at him and I said, what kind of fucked up shit is this? We are not watching this. And we took a break for quite some time until I think we started reading the books again before we started watching the show again. So then we decided that we were going to read a book, watch the season, read the book, watch the season. and Until we were caught up. Yeah. And then... After that, we were just in. Fully in. Yeah. I think the mommy hormones were running high. (laughs) 
Well, it was a little shocking, you know, to see, you know, a small child being flung from a, you know, castle window like that. I don't know. Now, it's not shocking at all. No, it's actually... It's quite tame compared to some of the stuff that goes on now. Very PG. (laughs) Incest, you know. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so for everybody that may not know, this is a series rewatch. So we are a spoiler-fold podcast. We cover anything and everything all the way to season, season seven, episode seven of the series as we wait for season eight to reappear in our lives. So today we're going to talk about Mockingjay. Uh, I say that all the time, Mockingjay, <laughs> Hunger Games. We're, today we're going to talk about Mockingbird. And Dave, as our guest, I would like you to take it away. What is your number five? All right, I spent some time going through my top five. Uh, It's a little in flux, but my number five, what I have is the first appearance of the mountain. Oh, is that the first time we see the mountain? I double-checked on the IMDb, and for that actor, that's the first time we see him. There was a previous one in season one, I think. With Joffrey's name day. Exactly. Yep. Um, Right, and, uh, you know, when Sandor and Gregor Clegane, they have that fight. See, like it's like episode one oh, or two. Oh no, that was a tournament of the hand. The tournament of the hand, yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyways, so this is the new actor, the uh, Icelandic gentleman whose name I'm not even going to try to say, but you know, like world strongman or whatever. It's the first time we see him, you know, when he's spearing those random guys in the courtyard for whatever reason. Oh my gosh! Well, I think that they were prisoners. So I think that they had been like sentenced to death, and this was the way they were going to die. But. Oh, I get that, and and I had the same thought, but at the same time, it's uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's kind of like you know this character building for no reason. Like we know that the mountain is a bad dude. We know he's a bad guy. He's you know long list of atrocities. You know he raped Elia. Elia, thank you. Uh, you know, and uh, murdered her children, and then raped and murdered her. He, you know, he burnt his brother's face half off. Long list of atrocities. But for some reason, they feel that we need to see him hacking random dudes apart, you know, for seven seconds before Cersei walks up and talks to him. It's just, I don't mind it, really. It's just in in the back of my head. I'm like, do we really need to see this? We know he's a bad guy. Well, I think at this point it had been, it had been rumors, right? Everything that we've heard about the mountain has been what we have heard about him, right? And so at this point, it's not jousting. It's not a tournament. It's not anything. This is kind of explains to me what a cold character he is and he just kills because he likes it i mean there's Bronn and sandor and they like it but they do it with some semblance of honor and in not this... just yeah not not like him not like the mountain so i don't know to me it was like i get it and i agree with you i do get it they were you know character building hey reminder this is a bad dude look he's murdering random people but you know, it's also like when you're watching a uh Bond movie and the villain walks in and kicks a puppy. You're like, we get it. They're bad. <laughs> you know? We get okay. it. Anyway, so anyways, uh, that was my number five. Just enjoying seeing the mountain, the new actor playing the mountain. He had one line. My apologies. I don't know his name or how to pronounce it, but uh, you know. That's okay. Do you remember what his line was? Does it matter? No, that's what Cersei said. Oh, that's what she said. Oh, he said, who who is it? Who am I killing? Who am I killing? That's it. Is it who am I fighting or who am I killing? See, now I, I asked you, do you remember? Was it, I don't remember. Was, was it who or was it whom? Okay, well, I'm just going to go right into my number five since we're going to stay in King's Landing for a second. 
And I wanted to talk about Braun. Cool, 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 cool. Because Braun makes me insane in this episode. Now, I know that a lot of people love Braun of the Blackwater. I have always been somebody that has not exactly been that big of a fan. I love early Braun. I think he's wonderful. I like the fact that he doesn't care about anything. But this particular episode made me mad because he came in looking really fancy. Quite dapper. He had a cape. He was bowing. He was trying to act like he was a big deal. And to me, all I saw was a man that was literally clothed in betrayal. He was given a house. He was given a wife. He was given all these fancy new clothes. How do you think he got them? Why would Cersei give Bronn those clothes? It wasn't because he had agreed to you know, not be Tyrion's champion because he's been gone the whole time. I think it's because he brought Shay from the ships to the Tower of the Hand. I think that he betrayed Shay. He betrayed Tyrion. He betrayed the people that brought him to where he is. I mean, basically, there's that conversation, what is it, uh, in Lion in the Rose, when Cersei said, tells Ah, when Cersei tells Tywin, that's that's the whore that right, Tyrion points, has. Right, and she points him out. Right, and so he says, have somebody bring her to me. Now, after Joffrey is killed, the first line out of Tywin Lannister's mouth is, uh, stop all the ships in the harbor. Right. He orders that to happen. So with that, we know Shay has not left the harbor because she was on one of those ships. The only person that knows what ship that Shay was on is Bronn. That's it. Or someone that followed Bronn because Bronn's known to be Tyrion's right-hand man. And I understand that, but that doesn't earn Bronn new clothes. No, it definitely does not. So to me, him showing up when Tyrion is at his lowest in these new clothes and Tyrion being as smart as he is, it would just be this huge huge slap in the face and he's already been betrayed by his sister his father his brother and now his best friend oh and he was also betrayed by varies in the last episode and his girlfriend so it's like nobody nobody is with Tyrion right now and i just i understand people love braun you are one of them i am a member of the braun fan club this is true i know you do but i really just never got back on board with Braun after this. I guess. This well, how is, do you feel about that? Well, uh, straight talk with the soul sword is actually my number four. Okay, so let's talk about it. So I, I like your title, by the way. <laughs> thank you very much. Here. I'm a big fan of alliteration. <laughs> so I guess I never really put it all together with him wearing all the fancy duds. I just figured he was purchased by whomever, call it Cersei, call it Tywin, hey, you're not going to be Tyrion's champion, here's your match with the dim-witted Lolly Stokeworth, uh, you know, here's your maybe castle, here's a cape, <laughs> you know, because you need capes, uh, you know, and I just figured that that was for him to abandon Tyrion. I never really put it together that maybe it was because he was one that brought Shay. I mean, we never really find out. We, we don't know that this is all conjecture, Informed conjecture, you know, I think it kind of makes sense in a way. Um, but I do understand why you're more a fan of Bronze early work 
you know, and not not later. Now he's more mainstream and wearing a cape and has guy liner. <laughs> guy liner because he has guy liner now. Well, it makes not his... now in this episode, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it it makes his eyes pop. Whatever he has guy liner. <laughs> you said he may be getting a castle. He may be getting promises by being bought off. However, there is that line in that scene where Tyrion is trying to say the same thing. I might be able to get you this. My wife is this. And he says, maybe, could, should, would. He said, I I already have what you are trying to maybe get me. But the clothes upon his back are already proof that he's received some of it. The lolly Stokeworth, whatever that he got. You right. know, I mean, sorry, you can't. I know you can't have a wife, you know, get a wife, but, you know. Not in 2018. He was given a wife back then, you know, the dim-witted lolly. No, I understand. No, I understand what you're saying. What I'm saying is, is that I don't think he doesn't operate in maybes, is my point. If he got a maybe from Cersei and a maybe from Tyrion, I would hope that he has a little bit of, of honor is the wrong word because he doesn't have any honor. It's been proven. I think Bronn has his own sort of honor. And one thing that I noted and that I jotted down... Like a Dexter code? <laughs> he has his code. It's money. He's a sellsword. He's he's made no... He has no qualms about it. It's who he is. He sells his sword. And Tyrion even asked him, why even come here? You know, why did you even come here? Bronn could have just taken the maybe castle, the wife, the cape, and never shown his face. But he went to Tyrion to talk to him, to tell him what happened, because he felt that Tyrion deserve that after all the time they've been together and may and some may see that as a slap to Tyrion's face but the way I see it is it is his own sort of honor own sort of code like I'm gonna come tell you at least that I'm betraying you or that I've taken this money not referring to the shave part of it which we think may or may not have happened but just the taking the money to not maybe fight the mountain and maybe die did, did he lose his old clothes like did he have to come in the cape could he have just come in his old clothes and just not had to outwardly say, look at me, If you were, look what your sister gave me? If you were given such new clothes, you're telling me that you wouldn't wear it? You're going to rock the cape. Even if it's going to hurt <laughs> your only friend? So Bronn tells Tyrion, you once told me if anyone makes you a better offer, I'll double it. And so Bronn felt like he had to come and tell him, you know, hey, I don't need another castle. Or I don't need two castles or two wives because who needs two wives? But he felt like he had to at least come and tell him what was going on because you said you could double it even though he, he, he knows that there's no doubling it, but he feels like he has to tell Tyrion. It's like his own sort of code. But, you know, it, it is it is sad and I do still like Bronn. And, you know, he's we I don't know if this has come up on the on on this pod before, but we've discussed it, how. Of all these character arcs and, oh, redemption and this character's doing this, Braun is unchanged. Braun is Braun. Oh, no. Yeah, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, I think. Okay. I think that he's like the only character He that may be the only one. Has never grown or evolved. He's never evolved. He's just been him. He's right. a sellsword. He kills for money. He, you know, changes his loyalty to whoever pays him the most. And he's made no, you know, no qualms about it. It's just, this is who I am. And that's what he does. And it's worked out pretty well for him thus far. I understand what you're saying, and I appreciate it, but I just can't get on board with it. How's that? I fully understand it. He has never changed. He's just in better clothes. Yeah. And Agreed. a cape. He looks and like, a cape. He looks like Lando Calrissian of King's Landing. <laughs> that's my that's my favorite cape. It's custom. It's custom. It's that's a custom, a custom piece. 
My number four is going to be a little tricky because it deals with a, a few different things. But my number four is Two Little Fingers at the Eerie. Okay. So I've said this many times on the podcast before that I think that Littlefinger has two voices. He has his, his straight up voice and he has his I'm a sneaky bastard voice. Agreed. So after Sansa slaps Robin and Robin goes running off, Littlefinger tells Sansa that was uncalled for or something like that, right? He goes, you know, and she goes, I'm so sorry I shouldn't have done it. No, no, it should have been done. It just should have been done by his mother. And as he's saying that, he's saying it just in a straight voice. And then he comes down as he gets closer to her. He starts in with the creepy voice. He's like, well, you know, Sansa, I always loved your mother and blah, blah, blah. Right. And then it's it's like right before he kisses her and he didn't kiss her because he has any feelings for Sansa. He even said so at the end. He has no feelings for anybody except for one woman in his life, his entire life, and that's Catelyn Stark. He kissed Sansa because he knew Liza was watching. And I think that this entire thing that happened was a ploy. And he's played with Sansa's life before. He's played with Sansa's life when getting her married to Tyrion. Uh, he's played with Sansa's life by putting the necklace around her neck, framing her for Joffrey's murder, getting her to the boat. He is an evil dude that will do anything for power. And so I think he knew that there was a very real possibility that Sansa could be thrown through the moon door, but he was willing to take that chance. And when he, at the end, when they're at, when they're at the moon door and Liza is holding Sansa over the moon door and she's just screaming at her. Littlefinger comes in and he goes, Liza, let her go. And he says it in that like Littlefinger straight voice. Like Charlton Heston, let my people go. Yes, like that. Just like that. He says it in, in, in that straight voice. But then as after Liza lets go of Sansa and Sansa is safe, he goes back into his throaty plan voice. And he's like, Oh, my sweet, silly wife. My sweet, silly wife. And then he goes, there's only one woman I've ever loved, right? And then, bam, pushes her through the moon door. Goodbye. That whole thing was orchestrated. I mean, we learned so much last episode and even this episode that Liza orchestrated the War of the Five Kings. She she orchestrated the death of John Aaron. Uh, she wrote the letter to get Catelyn to King's Landing, to get Ned to King's Landing because of uh, the... Uh, parentage of Robert's non-children. So I did a little research and I thought about um, Littlefinger just as a whole up until this point. And Littlefinger has his own little crazy kill list. Um, so up until now, season four, episode seven, Littlefinger has had an indirect hand in orchestrating the deaths of John Aaron, Ned Stark, Casualties of the War of Five Kings, because he started it, which is up to, like, thousands of lives. Mm -hmm. Roz, Joffrey, Ser Dantos, and now Liza. Liza is the first person that he has directly killed in the show. He has Interesting. Not, he has not had his hands on anyone else. He's only been the whispers in the back. This is the first time he's killed somebody. And the fact that he did it in front of Sansa says that he trusts her completely. Which is insane. Which is insane. Sansa knows too much at this point because she's overheard Lysa talking all this 
crazy stuff about their plans. And he and and as we know, next episode, she has to testify. Yep. She has to be a witness to what happened. That to me, that's when I don't know if she's playing games at that point or if she really trusts Peter because she does say in season seven, episode seven, I may be a slow learner, but I do learn. I think she did trust him at this point or she's in the veil. You know, she's in the eerie and she knows no one there except for Peter Baelish and Robin, who she backhanded, you know. (laughs) So she may be thinking, I need to make sure he gets out of this because, you know, he's going to keep me safe. Interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. It really, I think it is. I think that it's a, it's just an interesting thought. So, anyways, Littlefinger and the way that he just kind of orchestrates everything at the Eerie. Do you do you agree? Do you think that that was all orchestrated by him, or do you think it was all luck? So your suggestion is that he kissed Sansa purposefully where Lysa would catch them, and then Lysa would take Sansa to the Moon Door, where he could then push her through. Yes. I definitely wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> I know I, it sounds insane. I think it's very plausible. I would not put it past him. He is a greasy snake, and he definitely could plan for that. Yeah, it's it's. I like these little thought experiments when it comes to this show, especially with characters like Littlefinger, because Littlefinger is just such a smarmy bastard. Smarmy, such an underused word. But, a, but appropriate. And he does look so surprised when Sansa pulls away. You know, he does look like, oh... Call me Peter. Like, oh, so creepy. So gross. And when he mentions, and an, oh, in another lifetime, you could have been my daughter. And then he kisses and her. And then he kisses her. Well, incest is in, apparently. Well, no, just just brother sister, right? Like that's the cool kind of, kind of incest. Well, aunt and nephew seems to be on the trend right now. Okay. Okay. Cool. 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 Yeah. So, what was your number three? So my number three, I don't have a a cute little uh, title for it, but it's just. Arya's lesson and the heart. Okay. Okay. So Arya and the Hound. Before we started this series re- rewatch, I forgot. I had forgotten how long Arya and the Hound had been together. Through, uh, you know, when he basically took her and they went off on their journey together for him to go sell her. I had forgotten how long they had been together, and I had I had forgotten how much I had enjoyed their banter and their talk and. Everything and I just you know enjoyed that scene where where Sandor Mercy killed that old farmer who was dying you know when he gave him his uh his water flask and you know and uh, he said can I have a drink dines thirsty work and he gives him the the drink and he says oh, I wish it was wine you know oh well so do I and he gets him right in the heart and he says that's where the heart is that's how you kill a man how long had Arya been with him at this point because she didn't flinch at all once he stabbed that dude right in the heart. She just was like, yep, this is my life, watching the hound mercy kill a guy. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, that was after Arya had had a really great conversation with this dying man. And my number three is actually the dying man speech and Arya. Okay. We're married. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then I'm glad I didn't go too much into that dying speech. I just wanted to touch on the the, the periphery. That's okay. It was just, um, I was just going to say that she had just finished talking to him about nothing is worse than this. And she's saying nothing is nothing. Nothing like, is nothing, right. And it shows how far Arya has come emotion emotionally 
and not even emotionally because she seems to be dead inside right now. <laughs> and what's funny is that right as they're coming onto the shack or whatever it is, the farm. Hut. Whatever it was, right? The hound says, could be food. And Arya says, could be soldiers. So she's a real glass half empty kind of. It used to be switched. Mm-hmm. When they went to the other, uh, when they went to the other inn where they went to, go, where Sandor got his chickens. Right. She said, I'm hungry. There, There's food there. And he said, there's probably soldiers there. There's probably danger there. Now we've switched. The hound, for some reason, Arya gives him hope. And Arya has lost hers. And I found that that switch has happened in this episode. And she bends down and she gives that weird, creepy, nothing is nothing speech to this dying man who's like, you know, what are you going to, who are you? And she's like, I'm Arya, Arya Stark, which was surprising that she said his name or her name. Mm -hmm. But what was even more surprising is that he didn't know who she was because he turns to the hound and says, are you her dad? He's been out. And his uh, shanty for a while, you know, didn't know who was who. But, I mean, you think everybody in Westeros has heard that Ned Stark has died. Yeah, he's the traitor, right? The Starks are all traitors. Right. And she says, I'm Arya Stark. And he asks the Hound if that's her dad. So he's totally out of it, which which proves that this whole Game of Thrones is like a High class thing, a high born thing. The the lower born people, the farmers, the everyday common people, they don't care about this shit. They're just trying to get by. Right. So it was just an interesting dynamic there. But then you're right. The she didn't flinch, which shows that they have been together for a while. She's also killed a couple of people. I was about to bring that up okay, because good. right after what is it, you know, two minutes later. Right after he says, that's how you kill a man. And then two minutes later, you know, when, uh, you know, when she's like, oh, I can't kill him. I, I don't know his name. He says, "My oh, I'm Rorge. And, he, and, she, and she says, thanks. And then she stabs him right in the heart. So quick. So quick. No change of expression. You know, it's just, that was like, what, two minutes later, right after that, or at least on screen time. And I just thought, you know, like that was pretty quick. And what's her body count to at this point? I don't know. I, I, wish... w- I was trying to remember, but I, I ran out of time to, to run that down. Well, because she killed quite a few people at the inn. I think she killed like three or four people at the inn. And then she killed Rogue. Did the hound kill Biter? Well, that was the one that jumped on his yeah, back and bit and him. bit him, Biter. Well, he like snapped his neck, you know, like Vader. Just... Okay. And then, um, and then threw him down. And then she killed somebody at Heron Hall, right? And she had a few people killed at Heron Hall. Right. Now, does she get the little finger list? I mean, does she... Are those kills on her, or is it that Jack and Hagar did it? But Jack and Hagar did it for her. He did it for her. I'm I'm speaking of direct kills because we know that her body count is only going to rise. Yeah, from at, this point at at House Frey. At House Frey, so excited <laughs> to see that. And I just had the thought, you know, when he looks at when Sandor looks at Arya and says, "You're learning." This is quite the apprenticeship he's running here. You know, it's how to stab someone in the heart, you know, all this other stuff. I mean, I'm sure they've covered, you know, horseback riding and, you know, making a fire, but also how to stab a man in the heart. Did you notice that she wiped her blade like he wiped his blade? I did not notice that. Yeah. Interesting. So you know how he killed the dying man and then wiped his blade on him. Right. And then after she killed Rogue, or Rorge. 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 Rorge, Rogue. I blame his mom for naming him that. Yeah. 
um, she wiped needle on him. She wiped the blood off. So it shows that she picks up everything that he does, which I think is a nice little, um, like a nuanced layer to their relationship. On Arya's, I mean, we all know that Arya has her list, but she also has her list of mentors. You know, you you had Serio Pharrell, and now Sandor Clegane, and then Jock and Hagar, whom some may know that Kristen believes that Jacques and Hagar and Cyril Farrell are the same person. Be- I Because they are. I am not convinced. However, I think that would be really awesome. You know, but Arya has this long list of mentors that she's learned, you know, killing from. And I'm just excited to see, like, what do you think Sandor is going to think when they meet up again in season eight? And, you know, she's doing like backflips and, you know, stabbing people with her, you know, Valyrian steel dagger and needle steel. The fight scene, the practice fight scene that she had with Brienne. Right. Imagine if the Hound was there watching that. I mean, he's going to do like a slow clap or, you know, he's going to like, what's he going to say? I don't know. Well, doesn't Brienne and the Hound talk about Arya when they were going into that meeting with Cersei and Jon and Daenerys in the last episode? I do not remember that. We'll have to rewatch it. But I think that they do talk about her. I'm sure how... I'm, I'm sure someone listening is like, yes, they did or no, they didn't. Just let us know. Is there anything else that you want to say about that scene? Not that scene, but with but speaking of the Hound and and, uh, and Arya, when she goes later to try to fix his neck and he yells no fire, you know, you just it's are you going to talk about that later? No. OK, so just, you know, you, you get a small glimpse at the depth of his loneliness. You know, when he says you think you're alone. You know, like, see my face? This is done by my fucking brother. You think that you're alone? Your brother gave you a needle. Not only that. Or gave that, you a sword. You're, my brother gave me, you know, fa- disfigurement and facial scars. But not only that, then his dad covered for his brother. Right. And said that the bed uh, bed sheets. The bedding caught on fire. Caught on fire. And so he didn't even have anybody having his back uh, when it came to his injury. And you're right. He was... At his most vulnerable, I think, during during that time. And I just, you can't help but feel bad for him. And I wonder, what, what do you think about this? I think that he came off of her list in that moment. What do you think? I would agree with that. Because she doesn't kill him when she has the chance, after Brienne almost kills him. Yeah, is that two more episodes or the season? I can't remember. I can't remember. We'll get to it. But uh, I think of all the character arcs, of, of all the arcs like we talked about before, the characters changing, the character arcs, I think his is one that's overlooked because of either what he did or he's, you know, out of sight for so long when he disappears for a season and a half or two seasons, you know, but his his character arc is over is overlooked, I think. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I think that the Hound is getting a lot more love now, though, than he has in the past. I know that when he shows up again... Um, with that group. Right. Led by Ian McShane. There was a lot of rejoicing with that. A lot and that was a nice cold open, you know? A lot Oh, of- it was so great to see him again. Uh just, you know, what he's like a farmer, he's like hoeing or something. And it's almost like he was reborn because he's a completely different character now after Arya leaves him in that field to die or to live. She didn't really care, but she walked away from him. The next time we see him is when he was helping that group of people. And, you know, Ian McShane's character touches on the fact that he was almost dead. He didn't think that he was going to make it. He thought that he was a corpse when he first saw him. 
And then he goes back to the house and um, that he robbed the farmer and the daughter. But, right. He took their silver. Right. He buries them. He sees something in the flames. He goes beyond the wall. He's a part of the East Watch 7. He's carrying a white back into King's Landing. I mean... Back the, in... I mean, back in seasons one and two, you would have never imagined, you know, Sandor out beyond the wall with all these other characters, you know, doing this stuff. Right. He was Joffrey's hound, you know? He was like, oh, is this the, some some butcher who, you know, is killing people? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I... I I enjoy the Hound, and I enjoy the Hound in early seasons now more than I used to because I know where he's going. I definitely see him in a different light. A good light, though. A good light. Mm-hmm. Um, I did pick up on a little piece of trivia for this episode dealing with the Hound, that the Hound and the Mountain are both featured without armor for the first and only time, or for the first time since the series began. Interesting. One- they were both with without armor. And one was made vulnerable from it, and the other one didn't was unchanging. Was covered in other men's blood. Still killing. <laughs> My favorite part of the scene between the dying man and the hound was when the hound said, why go on? And the old man says, habit. Habit. <laughs> I have a habit of breathing. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I laughed so hard. And you know what? I, we saw this episode, I think, twice before. Yeah, twice. And I laughed every time. I just thought it was so funny. Habit. And and the way that dying man was laying there for a second, I thought that um, it was the same actor that plays the High Sparrow because he kind of looked like him while he was laying there dying. And oh, yeah. I, and, I, and I had to go check. It's not him. But I, I, I thought that's... Well, because Game of Thrones is known to reuse actors. Tommen. Looking at you, Tommen. So I thought, do they have this random dying guy and they loved his dying speech so much that they cast him as the High Sparrow? But no, it is not the same guy. <laughs> It was a great speech, too, by that dying man um, when he asked about what the Hound was going to do with Arya, how he wanted. And the Hound was like, well, I'm going to get a ransom. I'm going to return her to her family. And he said, that's a fair trade. That's, you know, there is the world is unbalanced now and we need more of that balance. We need more, you know, something for something. And I think that in his speech, we really hear kind of not only what commoners think of kind of the world of Westeros right now um, and in this particular spot of the show, but also kind of like the overarching reality of Westeros right now. Everything is out of balance. We've got the wrong people in power. Winterfell is does not have a Stark in it. King's Landing has bastards as, as the kings. Uh, the Wall has Alistair Thorne and Jano Slint leading the charge. Scumbag and scumbag. Right. Um, You know, so there is a definite unbalance. Littlefinger is Lord of the Vale. I mean, you could just keep going on and on and on about how unbalanced things are. And you really find that out in this episode. Just kind of the state of things. I mean, I was going through my notes... Um, before we started recording and there there's so much to this episode that it was hard to find a top five because mm-hmm. there's so much happening right now um, even if you go over to marine uh Asipor and yunkai have been taken back over by the old leaders by the masters there's not a lot of anything good 
happening right now. And what's nice is that we're going to see come season five, the tide is going to start to change a little bit, but we have to get through this yucky part first. And there's still a few more speed bumps along the way as the tide starts to turn. Just a few speed bumps. We'll call them speed bumps. Sansa has a slight speed bump. Slight! (laughs) Her speed bump is larger than others. Her speed bump is giant. It's pretty big. Yeah. It's pretty big. It's like, it's like, she, she, no, she just rams into a brick wall. I felt really bad for Sansa during this episode because she's doing all this talking about, oh, I can't, you know, I'm never going to see Winterfell again. And, you know, uh, young Sir Robin, young Lord Robin is like, oh, do you think you'll ever go home again? She's like, probably not. My family's dead. Uh, It was burned down and someone else lives there now. I'm never going to see it again. Just so like down. But, you know, us knowing what we know, it's uh, it's going to turn out okay. So I have something to say about that a little bit later when we get to notes or if it's one of your points. It's not one of my points, but I plan to bring it up. I have, I have something also about that scene in my later notes. Oh, okay. We'll have to see. If, I have uh, a feeling it's the same thing. Probably. Um. Okay. So that was my number three. What was your number two? My number two was Melisandre and her potions. Oh. So the scene where Melisandre is taking her luxurious bath in the weird bathtub and uh, Celsi comes in, right? That's how you say her name? If Stannis Celise. is the king. Celise. I want to Th- say Celsi Thank too. Thank you. You're Celise. welcome. So Celise mentions that Stannis wants to bring Shireen with them on their journey. And she says, oh, we can't let it be because, you know, Shireen you know, is prone to heretical, you know, things and this and that because her daughter is not a follower of the Lord of Light. You know, we all have religious strife in our own families. You know, it goes on everywhere. So with her, she says, you know, we can't bring her. But Melisandre, of course, gives that long monologue to Celise about how I use these potions and this and that for, you know, to fool men and to fool them into whatever until they can see the light or until they can believe. But you, you know the truth and you... You can see the truth no matter how harsh it is. So my theory is that does does Celise know what is going to happen to Shireen? Has she seen Shireen's fate in the fire? No no pun intended. But did she see what like what's going to happen to her daughter and that's why she doesn't want Shireen to come on the journey? And does Melisandre know what's going to happen to Shireen? She knows that Shireen must be burned alive a year later however long down the road it is, does Melisandre know that that's eventually going to happen and that's why she insists that Shireen accompanies them on their journey? Huh. I know I know that Shireen burning alive is one of the really hard points for a lot of us to take and we don't like to... I don't want to rewatch that episode. I, I like to pretend that it actually didn't happen. But just with this whole talk about the, the harshness the harshness of the truth and, you know, you can see it and this and that, you know, what and what must be done... They're speaking about Shireen, right? I do agree that Melisandre knows that they're going to need Shireen in the fact that she has king's blood. Whether Stannis is the true king or not, Robert was the true king. Right. So by Robert's line, Shireen has king's blood. We know that because that's why she stole Gendry. She knows that Shireen has to come because she may need her blood. Whether or not they knew that they were going to have to burn her at the stake? I don't know. I had a different view of that scene. Okay. I would love to hear it. I think that Melisandre kind of 
reveals herself to Celise here. And she says, I use tricks. This creates a flash of light or a poof of smoke. And then men who, you know, haven't been a part of the Lord of Light before, whatever, after they see this magical flame or smoke or something like that, then they can walk into the light and they can be a believer. So we learn that Melisandre is tricky. Mm -hmm. She likes to be tricky. So what does that mean? I think that it means that she knew that Celise was not someone who could be tricked with fire. She doesn't even understand jokes. She likes the truth. She likes people to talk at her straight. So Melisandre says, I'm going to give I'm going to give it to you straight. And then after that, she flatters her. She empowers her. She tells her what she can do. I think you can actually look into the flames. You'll be able to see everything with such clarity and how we need to take your daughter and how it's all going to be fine. And Celise is so captivated by this woman who she puts on a huge pedestal, right? Oh, yeah. To the point that she lets this woman sleep with her husband. And even mentions, you know... It was the Lord's doing and bringing you into our life and Stannis's life. She's clearly unbalanced. It's that unbalancing again. We have the wrong person in Dragonstone. There we go. There's another one. Anyways, <laughs> I think Melisandre used one of her parlor tricks, but she used it geared towards a woman. Interesting. And it's hard to explain. Did I explain that? I think so. Okay. Okay. Well, she used flattery. Instead of, you know, her potions and tricks, she used flattery and says, you don't need all these tricks. You're smart. You can see the flames. You can see the fire. You can see the truth no matter how harsh it is. And that's why she says, when we sail, we must bring Shireen. The Lord needs her. That... Which is why I think she knows what's going to happen. Because who knows? I believe that Melisandre knows that she's going to eventually burn Shireen. Not Celise. That I'm less clear about. I'm wondering... My my question was, does Celise know and that's why she doesn't want Shireen to come? Or is it just she doesn't want her to come just because she doesn't really care for her daughter all that much? Which, I think that it's that one. Because it once be. because once Shireen dies, she kills herself. It's too much. So you think if she had known, there's no way she would have let Shireen go? Not, not even a little bit. I think she was embarrassed of Shireen. I think that she thought that Shireen was proof that she had failed as a mother and she had failed her husband for not producing an heir and only be able being able to uh, produce not only a daughter, but a daughter who had grayscale. But I think that she still loved her daughter. I think that watching your daughter get burned at the stake, there's how do you come back from that? Oh, clearly you don't. Well, right, exactly. Um, I, I can't talk about it right now because it's it's too much. Um, so Celise does not see that, but I think that Melisandre definitely knows she needs Shireen. You say because, you know, she needs her blood, but she says the Lord needs her. I think she knows she's going to burn her. Say what you will about the Lord of Light, whatever. We've seen her actually do stuff. She brought Jon Snow back, so we know something is actually working there. Well, we've, we've discussed this before. R'hllor is the only one that's ever actually shown tangible proof that right that he or works, she or Sorry. she <laughs> works that he works exactly well and we see that there is powers anyways because when melisandre takes off that necklace 
which is another thing I was going to bring up. We see she's not wearing her necklace here. So that's either a giant plot hole that the showrunners missed or which I think is more likely is that um, you like you see her set up at Dragonstone with all of her assortment of potions and, you know, all, you know, spells and all her little stuff. Maybe she was using that, you know, like that, like that stuff she sprinkled into the water or whatever else. She has other means to maintain her youthful appearance. But when they leave, like when they're at Castle Black, that's all she has left. That's all she has. So she had to like make that pendant or the whatever's called her necklace. She has to use that because she doesn't have access to all of her potions and all of her tricks. That is smart. You're smart. Well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Anyways, but that was my first thought was like, where's her necklace? Wow. That's, I like, that's interesting. That's mm-hmm. an interesting thought. I do like that. Yeah. You can see right here I wrote, doesn't have access to her potions. <laughs> if they really were just ways to trick men into following the ro- the Lord of Light, then she didn't really need the potions. Maybe she needed them so that she didn't have to wear the necklace. I'm going to take note. When does that necklace show up? Like well, all the we time. don't see them again, I think, until after the battle at the wall. Unless, oh, there, uh, yeah. uh, unless there's another scene with them getting on the boat. Well, no, they're going to be there for episode 10. Well, right. But there's going to be that scene where Sir Davos, re- you know, he learns to read all of a sudden in his uh, montage of learning. And he, and he gets that raven from Castle Black. Right. And he's like, oh, and they, you know, and they, we don't see what happens, but we know what happens later. I'm not sure we see uh, Melisandre again before that episode. No, I don't think we do. I think you're right. I think that we're we don't see her. It's either at the very end of episode nine when Stannis comes in. I don't know if he she's riding next to him, or if it is just episode ten. I guess we'll have to wait and see. It's like next week. Okay, <laughs> we're on a fast track. Fast track. Good. Um, hey, it means that winter is coming in April. I'm excited. So that was your number two. That was my number two. What's your number two? My number two is the theme of hope. So we see a lot of despair over the last couple of episodes and even in this episode. But I saw that we also had a this like little resurgence of hope in the episode. And it only came at small moments. Uh, earlier, I had mentioned that it seemed that the Hound had had hope, hope for food. That he was in a more he was a little bit more positive than he was before, whereas Arya is nothing is nothing and everything is meaningless. Um, everything is garbage. Tyrion, yes. Tyrion gets a champion, and you mm-hmm. actually see life coming back to his face because he was given hope. He knows, like everybody knows, Oberyn's the shit. They don't call him the Viper for fun, right? There's a reason, right? Brienne gets information that Arya is alive and hope. hope. Hope is gathered into their quest for the Stark girls. So that was exciting, especially after Podrick was like, you may not want to do that. Can we keep our identities a secret just a little bit? And Brienne, she's always on her own little track, right? But she seemed a little deflated after that. And it's funny that she seemed a little deflated because Pods are her squire. But the minute Hot Pie comes out, and he says, I don't know about Sansa, but I do I do know about Arya. And both of them stop in their tracks. And then, uh, you know, after Hot Pie leaves, you know, she's looking at the direwolf bread and she looks at Pod. She's like, you were saying? <laughs> and Podrick has no response to that. He just takes his little cloak and, yeah. Oh, wa- he has a cloak too. Wa- wanders off. 
But it was it was hope being inserted back into their narrative. And Arya, Arya found somebody that she didn't even know was on her list, but was on her list. And she got to kill somebody off of her list, which as she gets closer to wiping the names off of her list, I believe that that brings her hope that she can complete her task or her mission of people that she's going to kill. So that was all I really had for hope because I think that we're in a pretty hopeless area. There were some small spots of hope. Yeah. I would agree. Do you have anything on Brienne in your top five? I do not believe I do. So I just wanted, before we move on to your number one, I just wanted to say, since we brought up Brienne, did you notice that Brienne was the only one that seemed to be offended that Hot Pie called her a knight or asked if she was a knight? (laughs) She's like, no. Hot Pie thought anybody wearing armor was a knight. Mm -hmm. And Gendry said, all you have to do is buy armor, put on armor, doesn't make you a knight. But he still has this like, oh, you're wearing armor. Are you a knight? (laughs) And Brienne's like, no. And she seems angry. But what I love is that Hot Pie doesn't care that she's a woman. She's obviously capable. Hot Pie is a chatterbox. But he. But my point is, is that Brienne is the only one that cares that she is a woman in armor. There's so many other people that don't seem to care. Jamie doesn't care. Podrick doesn't care. Hot Pie doesn't care. But she cares. Yeah. And I just thought it was an, an, an interesting thing that I noticed, especially in this episode, that she was, like, mad at him. And it's like, you want to be a knight. You're the one wearing the armor. Yeah, you. this is, like, your big dream is to be a knight. If it's not, tell me then what is the point. You you want to be in a king's guard. You want to be um, a protector of, of people. You want to wear armor. You're really good with a sword. But you don't want to be a knight and you're offended if somebody thinks that you're a knight? I mean, and what do you call her if she gets knighted? You can't call her Sarah and she doesn't want to be called Lady. Mame? Sounds like, like ma'am. She sounds like a butcher. Well, it's not. Well, they don't call them Sir. It's Sarah. Well, I So then not ma'am, but. Mom. Madam. Mum. I don't know. We'll have to have a roundtable discussion trying to work this out, I guess. I've. I've thought i've given it (laughs) i've given it more thought than i'm proud to admit to oh no 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 i'll tell you right now i've given it considerable thought that is an excellent point though she's going to all this trouble i mean you're the one on the horse wearing the heavy hot armor all these miles you know you're the one that's dressing up like a knight with a valerian sword she has more honor in her little pinky than most knights do anyways i wonder if there is a i mean there can't I imagine there's no rule saying a woman can't be a knight. Maybe there never had to be a rule because no one, no woman wanted to be a knight. So there's no rule that says that she can't do it, but no, <laughs> nobody wants her to do it. So I what, guess. it's a loophole? Well, you shouldn't use the loophole. You should always use the main hole or no hole at all. Said hole too many times. <laughs> all right. So with that thought, um, what is your number one? The Viper and the Monster. That might be my number one. It might be your number one. Okay, yeah. it is my number it one. It is. Except mine is titled, Oberyn is Tyrion's champion, with a smiley face. With a smiley face, mm-hmm. because Tyrion's face does smile. His face lights up with hope and tears of joy in his eyes. But it's such a compelling scene, and that actor, I just, I can't think of his name. Pedro Pascal. Pedro, Pedro Pascal. But when he shows up and just sits there in his, like, yellow mustard robes that he pulls off somehow um, and just, you know, he tells him. It's the way he walks. It's, it's the, the confidence. Way, it's the way he does everything. Yeah. He is such an amazing character. And I, 
when he showed up, I was equal parts happy and disappointed because we know what's what's to come. I'm really not looking forward to covering that. But he's such an amazing character, and this actor does such a fantastic job of just, you know, he's got the swagger, but not too much swagger to where you hate him for it. You know, he's got the confidence, but not overconfident. And, you know, he rolls into Tyrion's cell and starts monologuing about, oh, I just had a lovely chat with this uh, wonderful blonde, you know, and turns out to be Cer- to be Cersei and... You know, I've never met a Lannister who want, who wanted to kill Lannisters before, you know, and all this, you know, in, innuendo and who double shared, talk. Who shared my love. Who for... share my passion for killing Lannisters. <laughs> and he says it so perfectly. And he says it so perfectly, you know, and he just gets on this roll and he tells that horrible story about when Tyrion was a baby and his disappointment that he wasn't an actual monster, but just, you know, slightly larger head, slightly shorter arms, you know, and how Cersei hated him and pinched his little cock until it was going to come off, you know, and just, you know, Ugh. you could see Tyrion's face, like, ha- Tyrion like having to live that, like, oh, it destroyed his world. I mean, he knows that Cersei hates him, but still no one wants to hear about, you know, your, you know, your siblings, you know, torturing you when you were a baby and you have no memory of it. I'm not going to say too much because I know you have a lot to say. No, but, no, please. But just... I just love that whole scene. And when, and when he said, oh, no, everything I want is right here. I will begin with Sir Gregor Clegane. I will be your champion. See, it's that thing again. You think that something's going to happen. You're like, hey, he's going to go on a quest and we're going to follow Oberyn Martell. And he's going to be, you know, the replacement for Rob Stark that we lost earlier. Ned Stark is going to end up on the Iron Throne. Right, exactly. (laughs) Ned Stark is going to bring all of them Lannisters down. and He's He's going to bring them to justice. Yeah. Chop. I mean. Oh, man. It's, you know, uh, Jason really likes to really likes to make the analogy of Lucy with the football. It's George R. Martin or Grimm holding that football. And we are Charlie Brown. Yes, right. exactly. I agree. I, I think his analogy is spot on. Have you heard him say that before? I have. Yeah. I have. He's, it's, it is spot on. I agree. And there's so many moments where, you know, Jason always comes into my mind because I'm like, it's Lucy and her damn football again. You know, I did, I did make a note about that story that Oberyn tells... Um, about the first time that he sees Tyrion because he sets it up so well. All we could talk about, although any all anybody could talk about when we sailed over was, you know, the monster that was born of Tywin Lannister. And it hurt Tyrion to hear this. Like, he just lays out this horrible story. And Cersei was a psychopath from the very beginning. It, it goes beyond being a sociopath, right? She wanted to just hurt Tyrion. She, and she didn't care that she hurt him because... He was going to die anyways. Who cares how it happened? They they say he'll die soon. Right. And I hope he does. I mean, she was horrible from the very beginning. But I thought really one of the most beautiful parts of this scene is that Oberyn said he looked at Tyrion and he goes, it was just a baby in the, cri- in the cradle. Mm-hmm. And I think Oberyn realized how hateful and horrible the Lannister family was to hate a child because... The baby didn't look very different. He said, your arms were a little shorter, your head was a little bigger, but you were a baby. And it proves, once again, that Dorne is this good place. There's something good about Dorne. Um, Where they don't kill little girls, right? He everywhere mentions... in the world, people hurt little girls. And see, that's very indicative of the world that Cersei grew up in and the mm-hmm. world that Oberyn grew up in, right? With him saying that it wasn't a monster. It was just a baby. Do you think that Tyrion's speech at his trial about how I'm on trial f- 
you know, I'm guilty of being a dwarf, you know, and Tywin says, you're not on trial for being a dwarf, you know, that must have resonated, uh, resonated a little bit with uh, Oberyn then. Well, I think absolutely, because Oberyn had, Oberyn wasn't buying any of those testimonies anyways. He, he is too crafty. He knows something is afoot. Well, and he knew too. He said, you know, Cersei was trying very hard to prove to me that she wasn't trying to sway me on the council. And Tyrion says, honest feelings. What would what Such a great quote. He I said, wish um, I could remember. Honest feelings for doing dishonest work. Something like that. Something it's one of lines. Cersei's specialties. Which is true, you know. She I mean, she did it even um she did it even when Bran was in a coma with Catelyn. Telling she, that story about her firstborn that You died. mean Gendry? Yes, I am referring to Gendry. <laughs> we share that theory. Or I know we, we do. We do share a belief in that theory. Yeah. Yes. Um, but she was trying to get Catelyn to let him go so that he wouldn't live and then oust Cersei and Jamie. So she used her honest feelings about losing that child to get Catelyn to do something that was horrible so that Cersei could win in the end. Right? I mean, it's a pattern of behavior for her. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, she is truly a terrible person. Like when she gets the Faith Militant involved and then she's surprised that the Faith Militant goes after her because she's stupid. <laughs> well, her daddy wasn't there to, to to protect her anymore. You know, it's like that house of cards just fell with that crossbow. We're Yay. getting there. We're, was, we're, we're getting there. We're so close. But yeah, um, when Oberyn agrees <laughs> to be... Tyrion's champion. That was just such a great moment because, you know, you've got the drums and the music and everybody's excited and Tyrion's crying and he's just like, I, <laughs> he's just like, ah, you know, clutching his pearls. It was just a really great moment. And I was, I was really happy to, to see, I don't know, to see that Oberyn was going to do something great, which he never got to do. But in that moment, I didn't know during the first watch. And so I thought it was pretty rad. But when he says that now, I'm just like, stop, please. He's just showing off his monologuing skills again. You know, this is such a good monologue that he delivers to Tyrion. And, you know, at the time, our first watch so many years ago, we didn't know that his monologuing was going to do him in. I know. Oh, man. You just do the deed and then you monologue over his dead body. Yeah. Or kill him twice. Yeah. And then you monologue. Yeah. Less monologuing, more murdering. <laughs> I guess it's not murder if it's a, a trial of combat, right? Yeah. Sure. It's sanctioned. So do you have any notes? I have several notes. We didn't really talk about Marine. We didn't talk about Marine, and we didn't talk too much about Sansa. So one is uh, the events at the Erie. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we mentioned before that you thought maybe we would have the same note is that um, I picked up on the thing where Robin asks if Winterfell has a moon door and like, Oh, what did you do with all the bad people and the people that you didn't like? And Sansa replies, girls didn't deal with that at Winterfell. Well, smash cut to season seven, episode seven. They do. Arya and Sansa handle some business. Uh, you know, I do business. I E little fingers throat. Yeah, you're right. That wasn't my note. My note, Uh, my note was um, Sansa building Winterfell. So um, after such a, this, such a beautiful scene. It was a very beautiful scene, and it, and it's one of my very favorite things that I read in Storm of Swords, and I found the excerpt uh, this morning, 
and I am going to read it and we'll play it after we finish this podcast so that if you don't want to hear it, you don't have to. But I hope that you do listen to it. It's only two pages, um, but I really hope that for those of you that have not read the books, I hope that it would that it would motivate you to read the books. And for those of you who have, have read the books, I hope that it brings back kind of a smile to your face because Sansa building Winterfell in the snow um, was just so beautifully written. And they really translated it, I think, perfect onto the screen. Now, there was something that was picked up on in that scene, and that is Sansa building Winterfell in the snow could have been foreshadowing to Sansa and Jon Snow rebuilding Winterfell in the future. Wow. Interesting. I did not pick up on that. Interesting. Yeah, because when she is the Lady of Winterfell, that's when it's snowing all the time and she's always there in her, you know, stark robes or whatever and snow's falling and they're rebuilding. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, and Jon Snow. God, I love the show. Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Harry and Goblet of Fire is like, I love magic. You know, like, it's all like, the time. I love this show mm-hmm. so much. Mm-hmm. You you kind of see what being a helicopter parent is all like, what kind of <laughs> benefits, I guess, are reaped from being a helicopter mom. And that is Robin of the Veil. Um, Robin didn't get his way. Robin kicks over everything and freaks out and blames Sansa and calls her names. And then he says something that you just mentioned a few minutes ago in what do you do with people that, you know, are mean to you or bad or that you don't like? You can't kill people that you don't like. You oh, just... he thinks he can. Exactly. Because his mother is crazy and lets him do whatever he wants. And he likes to watch the bad men fly. I don't even think he has the concept of death. I guess this is one of those nature versus nurture, or for him, it's a nature-nurture sandwich, wherein he got some crazy genes from Lysa and all the bad nurturing, you know, to make him a horrible fucking kid. Not to mention the breastfeeding. Well, that's just good parenting. <laughs> so gross. You can't even say that with a straight <laughs> face. I could not finish that with a straight face. Oh, he is just such a little shit. Mm-hmm. Well, I was talking earlier with a friend, uh, today and we were talking about um Robin of the Vale and how if you are kind of that helicoptery type of parent you have two outcomes one of them is Robin and the other one is Joffrey and there's really not much in between oh the Joffrey Robin scale yes <laughs> yes we're going to make this a graph it's going to be the Joffrey Robin scale of helicopter parenting you heard it here first folks <laughs> Interesting. Very interesting. So, um, and you wanted to talk about Marine? I did. We didn't really talk about it, but I thought that Daenerys had a lot of good points, a lot of stuff that she said that I didn't think was good enough to be in our top five, but I found them very interesting. So just more proof that Danny is the leader that deserves to be the leader, that her mind can be swayed and she can change her mind. You know, when she, uh, when Jorah, the Andal, convinces her, you know, hey, maybe give them some kindness, don't kill all of them, you know, and she has that great line about they can live in my new world or die in theirs. And then, you know, better catch up with Dario and, you know, tell him I changed my mind and then says, nope, tell him you changed my mind. Just the fact that, you know, she can listen to reason 
and change her mind without going crazy. It's, just, it's more proof that she does deserve to be the leader. And she carries that thought with her throughout because after the spoils of war with Drogon, she said, you can either bend the knee or you can die. You can live in, in under my rule or my dragon here is going to kill you. And I do think that that was the difference. You know, she's not the Mad Queen. You know, she's not like the Mad King because she didn't just burn people like, oh, I choose, uh, you know, wildfire as my champion. It's like, no, she gave them the choice. Yeah. Bend the knee and all is well or I'm going to kill you. Not not unlike how long ago her ancestor Aegon the Conqueror, he told them, bend the knee and you will keep your titles and your lands and you will prosper or I will wipe you off the face of the earth. And that's what happened when he, you know. Randall Tarly and Dickon. <laughs> is it Rickon? Dickon. Huh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Such so many good little moments like that. But, you know, just like with Aegon, he gave, you know, the kings of Winteros the choice, bend the knee or be destroyed. And some bent the knee and they prospered. Some fought and were destroyed. Did you call Westeros Winteros? Did I just say Winteros? Yes, you did. <laughs> well, actually, I believe the uh, the maesters say that when winter does come, it oh. changes to Winteros. Oh, was that a little footnote in the book that we just all Just a overlooked? small footnote. You may, you may have missed it. It was way in the back. Winteros, that sounds like a uh, frosted Cheerio. It sounds like... <laughs> Sounds like an alternate universe. Alternate if Stephen universe. King wrote a song of ice and fire. <laughs> I loved that scene as well, and and I had I had the same takeaway from that was that I love it that she said that Jorah said, if Ned Stark had done what you were about to do, I would be dead. Exactly. I have changed. I am devoted to you. I'm freeing slaves. Give these people a chance to do that now. She chose the wrong one to marry, quote unquote. Agreed. I don't even know. Did she marry him or were they just like intended for each other? They were intended. And I know it's different in the book and what happens on the show. I can't remember. I'll tell you what. She wasn't going to consummate any of that. It's just so sad, too, because you see that they that she relies on him so much and she trusts him completely. And she she's completely 100 percent vulnerable to him and whatever he has to say and she's going to be betrayed by him really soon and it's just so sad when that happens because while jorah did betray her in the beginning he didn't betray her once he fully committed to her right he i think he has more than made up for that and when she sends him away i don't know my heart broke for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, he does bring Tyrion back and they have a nice little journey and he goes to Old Town. And I mean, he has his own journey. And I think that he needed to find out who he was without her anyways. But uh, it was it just Jorah without Daenerys and vice versa. It was really hard for a while. It, so anyways, um, I think. That is all I have for note. So I had two questions that I wanted to ask you. The first one is, what do you think would have happened if Jamie did volunteer to be Tyrion's champion? <laughs> I found that so funny when Tyrion said, just think, the Lannister lion wiped out with one sword stroke. But do you think that they would have even let the Tywin tri- would never have let that happen. So Jamie should have known that, or Tyrion should Tyrion should have known that Ty that Tywin would never let that happen. So then he should have insisted that Jamie 
do it, knowing that Tywin would stop it? I think that if Tyrion was on his A-game, he would have been able to figure that one out, but he's broken right now. Do you, do you, do you think that either Cersei or Tywin would have let Jaime get killed by the mountain? No, that exactly. I don't think, first well, of all, exactly. the mountain would have, wouldn't have been chosen, or trial by count, combat would have been canceled, or they would have said, a king's guard cannot be someone's champion. They need to be the king's guard or something. I just love thinking about how these characters would have reacted, it, meaning Tywin and Cersei, if Jamie said, yeah, I'm going to be Tyrion's champion. I don't know if Jamie would have the stones to do that, to defy his father and his lover no. like that. I don't know. I mean, there's no way the Jamie of season four cannot do that. I don't think the Jamie of any season could do that. Season seven, Jamie, he left. That was the hardest thing that he's ever done. He looked like he didn't even want to go. <laughs> it was like he's like the producers are making me go <laughs> i am so curious about what his journey is going to be in season eight i mean obviously with only so many episodes it's not going to be lots of long shots of him riding his horse alone i mean they have to kind of like you know smash cut him him at castle black or him at winterfell or something but i want to see him reunite with so many people Bran being one of Bran, them. Bran, he's like, hey, by the way, sorry about that. And Bran's going to, Bran as the three-eyed Bran, the three-eyed Raven is going to say, yeah, no problem. Bran doesn't care about anything. He's now a uh, tree computer. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're he, right. He barely acknowledged uh, jo, uh, Jojen's sister, Mira. Mira. Yeah, Mira Reed, when she left and said, hey, so it's been several years. We've been together through thick and thin. You know, H- Hodor died. Your wolf died. My brother died. I'm going to head back to the home. And he's like, all right. Later. Later. And she's like, do you not have anything else to say? He's like, wear a coat. Yeah, wear a coat. <laughs> you know, so I think as as the Thread Raven, he wouldn't care at all about Jamie Lannister other than, oh, hey, what's going on? Okay. I think I think that there's something to that. Absolutely. I don't know. I don't know. If I... anything could break through his uh, computer shell, I mean, that would be it. The person that shoved him out of the wall. But does he even remember that it was Jamie? I mean, I'm sure he can look into the tree roots and whatever and see who it was. Yeah, I think he knows. He knows about the cat spa. He knew about the cat spa. He gave it to Arya. Yeah. I mean, if I if I had those powers, I definitely would look up and see what had happened to me. We 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 got off track there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, you have any other notes? Speaking of speaking of the wall. <laughs> speaking of the wall, in in by that we weren't at all. No. Since you brought up the wall. <laughs> So speaking of those turds at the wall of uh, Jano Slint and Alistair Thorne, it's just, I'm just watching them and they're going out of their way to be so small and so petty, mockingly calling him Lord Snow and, you know, this and that. And you can see, and not, and not just this episode, but John is somewhat taking the high road of not engaging with them. You know, when, uh, you know, he just goes and takes ghosts, you know, and he like tries to, hey, I think this will be a good idea to go kill these mutineers and they're super rude and condescending to him. And then he goes and does it, comes back and they're rude to him and he kind of takes the high road. They expected him to die out there. Oh, absolutely. They did not. I think that when he came back, it was just such a risk that they took. This guy has been with the wildlings. Let's say for a year he was with them. Six months to a year. Six months to a year he was with the wildlings. I think he can handle himself beyond the wall, which shows how ill-equipped they are to know 
just how far this guy has come. And I also think that they know that he was being groomed to be the Lord Commander under Jor Mormont. Mm-hmm. Then and that's why they're so afraid. Which is why they wanted him to die. They're trying to keep him in a spot or in his keep place. Keep reminding him that he's a steward. Exactly. You're, and then I think also, what do you think about this? Do you think that the builder, the master builder, really wanted to say no? Or oh, did he want to close the tunnel? I think he wanted to close it, but he didn't want to get on Thorne's bad side. I thought the same thing. Because at this point, Jon Snow, I mean, I think... All the brothers know he is a combat veteran at this point. He is ranged beyond the wall. Even though he's not a ranger, he was handpicked by the bear, by Mormont. He has Mormont's sword. He has his blessing, his sword. He's a combat veteran. He climbed the wall. He came back. You know, he killed some wildlings and made it back, escaped. He, he, He came back to warn them. He's got all these great ideas. Then he went and said, hey, we got to take care of these mutineers because... If Mance Raider gets to them and learns what they know, we're, we're finished. He's the only one, not the supposed leaders up there on their little high table, but he's the only one that's actually advocating, trying to do this stuff and, you know, to save their lives and, you know, save the wall. And they're just being so petty and just, you know, trying to get him to lash out at them. And that's why he says, oh, you and Tarly will have watch on top of the wall. And that's when Sam has to pull him back a little bit. And see, what they don't understand is that they just handed another victory to John by doing that. Who sees Mance Raider coming? It's John and Sam yep. because they have night watch. Because Mance said he was going to build the biggest fire that the North has ever seen. Okay, well, when do you see fire? You know, and then they're proved he's proved right in the future again when the giants are trying to get through the tunnel. And that's how Gren dies, man. Oh, poor Gren. When, whenever I see Gren, one of the best scenes. In the entire series. Oh, by far is when they're in the tunnel and they're saying their oath as that giant is bearing down on them. Chills. Chills. Literal chills. Yeah. All the time. I totally agree. Look, I I get really excited thinking about the future when it comes to after the repercussions of what happens after this battle on the wall. Everything changes. Everything changes. The tide starts to turn again, right? And... Alistair proves to be a bigger man than I think we gave him credit for in the beginning. Jano Slint dies, which is Good. awesome. Right? So that's coming. But right now, it seems foolish not to prepare for this war, which is what Alistair and Janos have decided they're going to do. Well, Alistair Thorne says, we've been preparing. We've uh, we've had this wall for a thousand years and this and that. And it's like, quoting history isn't preparing. So unless they've done stuff, so you they, know, off, right. off so they're doing the nothing. screen, we haven't seen. I There's a hundred guys, and they're doing nothing. John's the only one that wants to be proactive. John's the only one that wants to try and at least get them semi-prepared. There's no way to prepare for this wall. If Stannis hadn't shown up, they all would have died. Every, Every single one of, one of them. Yeah, Stannis really saved the day. Good for Stannis. It's one of the few things that he does that's right. Stannis is mostly an honorable man. He is an honorable man. He's just, he he's, got he's, confused. He's made some poor choices. He got confused. He got confused. He poor saw poor pre- Stannis. He saw pretty lady. I want to see the pretty lady. <laughs> I just want to see the pretty lady naked. Yeah, that's it for my notes. How about you? One one last thought, okay. it, and it's quick. During Daenerys and Jorah's conversation, she mentions that Jorah once served in the Golden Company before she joined him, or before he joined her company, her, you know, whatever. That's true. You once served in the Golden Company, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, I don't know, for some reason, I had totally forgotten that. Do you think this is going to come up again in Season 8 when the, we all think the Golden Company is coming? 
I think the Golden Company is coming because Cersei's going to buy her army because nobody will fight for her anymore. And I'm I, hoping it's the Second Sons. And I know that you're hoping that it is a Golden Company, but like Dario's now leading it. Yeah. I know that that's what you're hoping. You know, oh, that's what I've been hoping for for too long. That would be complicated. Who cares? Because Daenerys ordered Dario to stay. He said that he would die for her and that until the day he dies, his sword is hers. And he and if she needs him for anything, she he will come. I think that if he hears that somebody is being ordered to come and fight against her side, knowing the skill of the Golden Company, knowing the skill of the fighters that are in Essos, I think that he would rally the Second Sons and he would lead the Golden Company and the Second Sons over across the Narrow Sea to pretend to be Cersei's armor ar- army and fucking slaughter her. I definitely want to see it, and I think it will be amazing if it happened. I just don't have high hopes that it's going to happen. You're probably right, because good things like that don't happen a lot. Because, you know, we all want good things to happen, and, you know, old Grimm is not going to give us what we, what we want, so. <laughs> You're right. Damn you, Grimm, and thank you for the wonderful books. Thank you so much. Go get Fire and Blood today. I read the first three, four pages, and I didn't even realize what I was doing. I was just leafing through it, and Kristen says, how's the book? I was like, oh, I'm reading it, I guess. I didn't he know. I just stopped talking. <laughs> he just stopped talking. I can't wait to open it. Yep. So that'll do it for our top five. Uh, we're going to take a little break, and we will be back with listener feedback. So stay with us. Mark. And we are back with our listener feedback. As you can tell, it's just me. Uh, Dave had to go and get something done. So I am going to be handling our dragon's breath. So our first voicemail comes from Steve Brown. And I'm going to play that right now. Hello, House Podcast. This is Steve with uh, some thoughts on, on Mockingbird. Uh, I love seeing Arya's training and her learning how to kill and, and knowing from what you said what she becomes. It, it's so interesting to see this relationship with, uh, with the Hound and uh, what's, what's to become of that and the fact that she, she takes that, that thought of, of where the heart is and does that killing. And, uh, you know, I don't think I could read the books. They're so long and there's, I just, I, I can't keep up with the show. I don't know if I can keep up with the books. Um, I, I loved the, uh, the line from Tyrion where he said, uh, finally a kind of filth, uh, that I like, <laughs> um, or yeah, um, uh, I, I just, I just thought that was funny and, uh, I may be misquoting that completely. And uh, the ending uh, with Littlefinger throwing Lysa out the the moon door. Um, wow. Uh, can't wait to hear what you guys said and uh, or what you guys thought. And I will send my thoughts on the mountain, the viper, in the next one. Thank you so much, Steve. Yeah, um, I know that it seems really daunting to do the books. I do. Um, but 
what's really great is that Roy Dotrice, he narrates all five of the books. He does it really, really well. And if you're in the car a lot or if, you know, you're at work a lot, it's something that you can just put into your ears and listen to. And um, you just get so much more story. But Game of Thrones, uh, the HBO version, the show, which we talk about here, they do such a wonderful job. You know, I've always said that I think it's the perfect show. Uh, the source material is wonderful, of course. And maybe when the show is all over and everything is all said and done, maybe you'll pick up the books. So I hope you do. Uh, but thank you so much for your feedback, as always. I love hearing from you. We have one more voicemail from our friend Archmaester Rennie, who I'm sorry, uh, Rennie, that I didn't get to you last week. We had recorded, and then literally a day after we recorded, I got your email with your voicemail. So I apologize for that. But I do have this week's. I have Mockingbird. So I'm going to play that right now for you. Greetings. So the theme that I want to bring up in this episode is monsters in human skin. Of all the monsters, Gregor is one of the worst. He should be human, but he's a beast. Sword practice on live people? Really? And Cersei walks over the spilled guts to welcome Gregor to the capital. Those two are made for each other. <laughs> Later in the episode, Sandor says about his burns, the worst thing was it was my brother who did it and my father who protected him. So Gregor is maybe the monster son of a monster father. Mm. The other monster in this episode, I think, is Melisandre. Um, she shows Selyse something in the flames. Does Selyse actually see Shireen's death in those flames? Is she so under Melisandre's spell that she goes ahead and brings Shireen along to the north anyway? I think maybe Melisandre is a bigger monster than even Gregor. And we know that she's in a beautiful young human skin that is not her actual skin. Of course, the person reputed to be a monster who is not a monster is Tyrion. Oberyn tells him that all the way from Dorne all anybody could talk about was the monster that had been born to Tyrion Lannister, but it turned out to be a big disappointment because Tyrion was not a monster. Oberyn says, that's not a monster, I told Cersei. That's just a baby. And that's true of Tyrion. The last monster in this episode is Peter Baelish. Uh, speaking of him, I wanted to comment on something that you said in the podcast on First of His Name, in which you said that Sansa is the character who suffers most and has the least control. I think that's true, and I think there's a storytelling reason for it. One of the things that George R. R. Martin is doing is unraveling a number of classic fantasy tropes. Sansa serves in a way as an audience surrogate in the early part of the story, in that she believes in those tropes, that chivalry exists and that knights protect the innocent, and she believes in romance with a capital R, and importantly, she believes that beauty equals goodness, which is why she was so into Joffrey at first. Sansa learns that all these beliefs are untrue, though her, through her own experiences, and we, the audience, learn these lessons along with her. Martin is a feminist writer, and Sansa is the character we most see that feminism expressed through, 
Unlike Arya, Sansa signs on to traditional subordinate and submissive gender roles, and she gets crushed. That's his critique of those roles. We only see Sansa take her first step toward her own liberation in the next episode. But that's a story for another time. Gosh, I love your insight. I just love your insight. I think you're spot on about Sansa. And I'm so glad that you went even further to identify what George R.R. Martin was doing with Sansa and her character and bringing her out of the fantasy world that she was living in. Um, Well done. Thank you so much. And keep your feedback coming. I very, very much enjoy it all the time. All right. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you so much to my husband, Dave, for joining us this week. Uh, He will be on our next episode, The Mountain and the Viper, Season 4, Episode 8. So give it a watch. I'm sure that you already have. I've thrown up the feedback link already, and we have some really great feedback this week for The Mountain and the Viper. As is always with any big episode, a lot of people have a lot of memories and feelings that go with it, and I think this is one of them. If you'd like to write in or record a message and send it in, you can email us at dragons at podcastica.com. You can check out our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash House Podcastica. And we're also on Twitter and Instagram at House Podcastica. Be sure to check out the other great podcasts that we have at podcastica.com. We also have our our own website and our website is housepodcastica.com. So you can go there and you can also leave your feedback Uh, So, you know, go over there, give it a visit, send in your little feedback on the little feedback page. We've already gotten a couple of uh, really nice comments. So thank you so much for those of you that have written in. I really appreciate it. Special thanks to Break of Reality for our new intro music. If you want to check them out, you can do so on YouTube or on their website, breakofreality.com. Thanks to Kirk Manley for our podcast art and Bed Beck for our website design. Kirk's work can be checked out on his website at studiokm.com. Ben Beck can be found at his website, nextlevelradioonline.com. Cersei, the Mountain, the Night King, you're on Greyjoy. Dave Halberg. So this chapter is from Storm of Swords. It is a Sansa chapter. It's chapter 80. It is actually the last chapter of the book, and I just think that it's beautiful. So I am going to read you a little excerpt from that chapter. Sansa drifted past frosted shrubs and thin dark trees and wondered if she was still dreaming. Drifting snowflakes brushed her face as light as lovers' kisses and melted on her cheeks. At the center of the garden, beside the statue of the weeping woman that lay half-broken and half-buried on the ground, she turned up her face to the sky and closed her eyes. She could feel the snow on her lashes, taste it on her lips. It was the taste of Winterfell, the taste of innocence, the taste of dreams. When Sansa opened her eyes again, she was on her knees. She did not remember falling. It seemed to her that the day was a lighter shade of gray. Dawn, she thought. Another day, a new day. It was the old days she hungered for, prayed for. But who could she pray to? The garden had been meant for a godswood once she knew, but the soil was too thin and stony for a weirwood to take root. 
a god's wood without woods, as empty as me. She scooped up a handful of snow and squeezed it between her fingers. Heavy and wet, the snow packed easily. Sansa began to make snowballs, shaping and smoothing them until they were round and white and perfect. She remembered a summer snow in Winterfell when Arya and Bran had ambushed her as she emerged from the keep one morning. They'd each had a dozen snowballs to hand, and she'd had none. Bran had been perched on the top of the covered bridge, out of reach, but Sansa had chased Arya through the stables and around the kitchen until both of them were breathless. She might have even caught her, but she slipped on some ice. Her sister came back to see if she was hurt. When she said that she wasn't, Arya hit her in the face with another snowball, but Sansa grabbed her leg and pulled her down and was rubbing snow in her hair when Jory came along and pulled them apart, laughing. What do I want with snowballs? She looked at her sad little arsenal. There's no one to throw them at. She let the one that she was making drop from her hand. I could build a snow knight instead, she thought, or even... She pushed two of her snowballs together, added a third, packed more snow in around them, and patted the whole thing into the shape of a cylinder. When it was done, she stood it on end and used the tip of her little finger to poke holes in it for the windows. The crenellations around the top took a little more care, but when they were done, she had a tower. I need some walls now, Sansa thought, and then a keep. She set to work. The snow fell, and the castle rose. Two walls ankle high, the thinner, the taller than the outer. Towers and turrets, keeps and stairs, a round kitchen, a square armory, the stables along the inside of the west wall. It was only a castle when she began, but before very long Sansa knew it was Winterfell. She found twigs and fallen branches beneath the snow and broke off the ends to make the trees for the godswood. For the gravestones in the lichyard she used bits of bark. Soon her gloves and her boots were crusty white, her hands were tingling, and her feet were soaked and cold, but she did not care. The castle was all that mattered. Some things were hard to remember, but most things came back to her easily, as if she had only been there yesterday. The library tower with the steep stonework stairs twisting about its exterior, the gatehouse, the two huge bulwarks, the arched gate between them, crenellations all along the top. And all the while the snow kept falling, piling up in drifts around her buildings as fast as she raised them. She was patting down the pitched roof of the great hall when she heard a voice and looked up to see her maid calling from her window. Was my lady well? Did she wish to break her fast? Sansa shook her head and went back to shaping snow, adding a chimney to one end of the great hall where the hearth would stand inside. Dawn stole into her garden like a thief. The gray of the sky grew lighter still, and the trees and shrubs turned to dark green beneath their stoles of snow. A few servants came out and watched her for a long time, but she paid them no mind, and they soon went back inside where it was warmer. Sansa saw Lady Liza gazing down from her balcony, wrapped up in a blue velvet robe trimmed with fox fur, but when she looked again, her aunt was gone. Maester Coleman popped out of the rookery and peered down for a while, skinny and shivering, but curious. Her bridges kept falling down. There was a covered bridge between the armory and the main keep, and the other that went from the fourth floor of the bell tower to the second floor of the rookery, but no matter how carefully she shaped them, they would not hold together. The third time one collapsed on her, she cursed out loud and sat back in helpless frustration. Pack the snow around it, Sansa. She did not know how long he had been watching her, or for when he had returned from the vale. A stick, she asked. 
"'That will give it strength enough to stand, I think,' Peter said. "'May I come into your castle, my lady?' Sansa was wary. "'Don't break it. Be gentle,' he smiled. "'Winterfell has withstood fiercer enemies than me. "'It is Winterfell, is it not?' Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.